From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. And I'm not Ira Glass. I'm Alex Bloomberg, a producer here. I know I sound a lot like Ira, but trust me, he is away this week. And I'm really excited to be guest hosting because I have the opportunity to play one of my favorite pieces of tape we have ever aired on the show. I've been here 17 years. This is one of my all-time favorites. And I have the excuse to play it for you thanks to a 180 that the city of New York is doing. So a couple of weeks ago, the city of New York said that it was considering lifting its longtime ban on ferrets as pets. <clears throat> and I'm holding uh, the Department of Health memo on the subject here. It was obtained by the New York Times recently. Decision memo. Ferrets. Purpose. Allow ferrets to be kept as pets with restrictions. The memo goes on to discuss the history of the ferret ban, how it started under former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, how it came about because of, quote, reports in the literature of ferret attacks on young babies. And then it lists the reasons to lift the ban. Most other places, including New York State, do not ban ferrets. Ferrets aren't any more disease-prone than dogs or cats. And, quote, evidence shows ferrets do not bite more frequently or severely than pets of the same size. Ferrets, in other words, are being unfairly singled out. And then, down at the very bottom, there are these couple of lines where it discusses what the reaction might be if the ferret ban is lifted. It says, quote, There was a well-known exchange between Mayor Giuliani and a ferret advocate. The city should, quote, expect the past to be reprised. Past, reprise yourself. We're going to go to David in Oceanside. Hello, Mr. Giuliani. We uh, speak again. Hi, David. Uh... Set up here. It's the summer of 1999. Mayor Giuliani back then had a call-in radio show that he would host. And the caller on the line is David Goodhartz, executive president of an organization called New York Ferrets Rights Advocacy. Let me introduce myself again. David Goodhartz, executive president of New York Ferrets Rights Advocacy. Uh, last week when we spoke, oh, uh, no. you said a very disparaging remark to me that I should get a life. That was very unprofessional of you. Here we're trying to get something I, I, seriously done without you talking over me. We're trying to get something very seriously David, done. David, you're on my show. I have the right to talk over you. But here's the thing. You and talked the fact over me is, the last time, and, and the fact, we are and trying the fact, to get an David, important issue taken care of where the city is violating state law. Get, and I David, asked you last week if you care about the law. Yes, I do care about the law. I think so you have totally and absolutely misinterpreted the law because there's something deranged about you. No, there isn't. They go back and forth like this for quite a while until finally Mayor Giuliani hangs up on David, but then keeps on talking. Mr. Giuliani, David, this conversation is over, David. Thank you. There is something really, really very sad about you. You need help. This excessive concern with little weasels is a sickness. I'm sorry. That's my opinion. You don't have to accept it. There are probably very few people that would be as honest with you about that. But you should go consult a psychologist or a psychiatrist and have him help you with this excessive concern, how you are devoting your life to weasels. You have a sickness. And I know it's hard for you to accept that because you hang on to this sickness. And it's your shield. It's your whatever. I don't, you know. And I know you're real angry at me and you're going to attack me. But actually, you're angry at yourself. So, David, see what you can do to get help. Now we're going to move on to Richard in the Bronx. Hello? Yes, Richard. Yes. Whoa. That's little girl. So what's, who is this? This is Princess Stardust Serenade Ferret. That's her full name. Wow. 
This week, one of our producers, Brian Reed, caught up with David Goodhart's, the ferret advocate in that exchange, at his home in Long Island. At times in his life, he's had up to five ferrets at once. There is Butch Cassidy, Thief of Hearts, Butch Cassidy, Thief of Hearts Jr., Linus Van Pelt. But now, it's just the one, Princess Stardust. And Brian was here because we wanted to hear David savor his victory. 15 years after that radio interview where he's berated by the nation's most powerful mayor, vindication is at hand. Ferrets may soon be legal in New York City. But David Goodhart says the way these new rules are being proposed would only make things worse. Sure, they left the ban, but only if you have a license. State law, which allows ferrets and which David feels should trump city law anyway, doesn't require a license. So if the city puts this in place, it's going contrary even more so to New York state law. But you're still allowed to own ferrets. Like, it, 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 that still sounds better to me than if you want to have a ferret, than having to break the law to do it. No, because if you're going to do something, you do it right. Otherwise, don't do it. Brian and David I mean, went around and around on this. No, Brian saying, come on, this is government. worth at least a little They're bit of celebration, right? David's answer, always the same. No. I got to say, um, you know, the theme of our show this week is uh, is 180, like doing a, uh, doing a 180, a mm-hmm. complete turnaround or complete reversal. And um, I came to visit you because our impression was that the city was doing a 180 on, on ferret policy. But from talking to you, it seems like you don't think it's a 180. No, it's not a 180. It's more like a uh, five degree turn. <laughs> it's a tiny, tiny step when, by right, they should be taking a giant leap. One eighties are hard to get right. They can be controversial, even to the people whose side you're joining. There's all that history that came before, when you were going in the other direction, fighting on the opposite side. It's hard for people to trust you now. Today on our show, one eighties, the controversy they invariably cause. Act one of our show, seeing the forest through the little trees, the story of a beloved classic of high school English, an infamous speech on racial hatred, and the 180 that unites them both. Act two, unsafety exit. We're in a teenager, after consulting the many adults in his life charged with keeping him safe, takes all their advice and decides that the one rational act to take is to put himself in danger. Act three, I'm the one who knocks, a short story by Ben Lurie about the 180 we're all hoping for. Stay with us. Act one, seeing the forest for the little trees. I'm going to start the story here. From halls of Maskinomet Regional High School in Topsfield, Massachusetts. The story will eventually take us many other places, from Alabama to Texas, New York, and Hollywood. But we're starting here, just outside Thomas Trevenin's sophomore English class. The students are about to discuss a book that's read in a lot of high schools just like this one, all across the country. A book that's at the center of our story. The Education of Little Tree. Okay, so um, The Education of Little Tree is about this boy named Little Tree. This is a 16-year-old in the class named Mana. So his parents died when he's five, like both his mother and his father, and he goes to live with his Cherokee and grandparents. The Education of Little Tree was first published in the mid-1970s as an autobiography of the book's author, Forrest Carter. It's been a staple of high school English and history classes for decades. Little Tree's grandparents teach him to respect the earth, to take only what he needs from nature, and to appreciate the fundamental human virtues of respect and tolerance. Here was another student, Joseph, who's 16. He was learning to deal with uh, racial discrimination, prejudice, and try and 
try and expand his understanding of the world and nature. And I'm trying to do that too. And this book, it's a hit. It's kind of embarrassing, but uh, when uh, near the end, I really, uh, it was, I sort of found myself getting a little emotional, <laughs> but uh, I really liked it. I found that uh, I really connected to Little Tree. I felt like he was a lot like me, sort of, I'm on the same journey that he was. We're both trying to become better people. I'm, I'm trying to learn to be a good person, become who I am, be a man. But uh, so was Little Tree. There's one more thing we should say about the education of Little Tree, something many people may already be aware of. It's a lie. It's not an autobiography. It's all made up. And the fact that it's one of the larger literary hoaxes in history is discussed in some of the high schools where the book is taught, like this one. But in many others, it's not. And the true tale of how this book came to be contains some even more memorable characters, learning somewhat darker lessons. Once you know this true story behind the book, it's hard to believe that it could have the kind of impact, convey the kind of message that it does to the students who read it today. Here to tell this larger story around the book is radio producer Joe Richman, who runs Radio Diaries. One more thing to mention, there's some potentially offensive language about midway through this story. Okay, Joe Richman, take it away. The story behind The Education of Little Tree, this iconic book with a message of tolerance and respect, begins with the most famous racist political speech in American history. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is the day of my inauguration as governor of the state of Alabama. And this day During the civil rights era, George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, was the personification of Southern racism. He was the one who famously stood in the schoolhouse door to prevent two black students from enrolling at the University of Alabama. But the moment that first really catapulted Wallace onto the national stage was his inauguration speech in 1963. Let us send this message back to Washington that from this day we are standing up and the heel of tyranny does not fit the neck of an upright man. He was promising that he was going to stand alone for the Southern cause, the cause of the white people. Wayne Greenhall was a young reporter in Alabama in the 1960s. He remembers listening to the speech and the famous words, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. It's vehement, it's mean-spirited, it's hateful. It's like a rattlesnake was hissing it almost. But it's beautifully written. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. This speech was a catalyst for much of the violence that followed. Just a few weeks later, Birmingham police used dogs and fire hoses on protesters. And later that same year, there was the bombing of a church in Birmingham, where four little girls were killed on a Sunday morning. Today, what most Americans know about George Wallace are those words, segregation now, segregation forever, even though they weren't actually his words. Behind those words, behind that speech, was an entirely different person. Asa Carter, the poet laureate of Southern racist speechwriting. Segregation now, segregation forever, became Wallace's symbol. It all came from Asa Carter's pen, and nobody could write it any better than Asa. It's time for another essay on liberty by Asa Carter. Thank you. 
The one great truth is race. Each race has a character. And each That's Asa Carter. He was a staunch segregationist. He started his own splinter branch of the KKK in Alabama. He wrote and published a white supremacist magazine. And every week, radio stations around Alabama would air Asa Carter's 15-minute liberty essays, which were about everything from his views on racial purity to the dangers of integration, communism, and rock and roll, all delivered with literary flair. That's why the left-wingers so much wants to make our history a shrouded nothingness of confusion, to twist the songs of our fathers into bebop rhythms, and to degenerate our mores into a cacophony of chaos. You've been listening to Ace Carter with an essay on liberty. In 1956, Asa had his KKK group attack singer Nat King Cole on stage because Asa hated the idea that a black musician was performing for white women. Asa reserved special hatred for the Jews, who he felt were really to blame for the corrupting power of popular culture. He once said, the Negro is the virus, but it's the Jew that inserts it in the veins of America. And then in 1962, Asa got a new gig as George Wallace's speechwriter. Ron Taylor was a good friend of Asa Carter's. They'd call him and tell him what they wanted, you know, and they'd just give him a cup of coffee and two packs of pale mails, and he could write you a 20-minute speech in 30 minutes. Let's win, win, win with Wallace and help him pave the way. To Asa's speeches helped George Wallace become governor in 1962. But within a few years, the arrangement was falling apart. Tom Turnipseed was George Wallace's campaign director back then. Times changed, and Wallace wanted to cool it a little bit. He didn't want to just come out and say, I'm a segregationist. He didn't want to use that terminology anymore. He wanted to be more moderate. Asa's views were too extreme. And so Governor Wallace didn't need Asa anymore. Asa would call me up and talk with me on the phone some. And he was resentful because he just felt like he was being ignored. Here's the guy that wrote the famous iconic speech, and now Wallace, he won't listen to me anymore. He won't talk with me. He won't take my advice. And so he, you know, felt, he felt used, I think, by Governor Wallace. Upon which I am about to enter to the best of my ability, to the best of my ability. George Wallace was elected governor again in 1970. But this time, his inauguration speech was very different from the speech that Asa Carter had written back in 1963. Wallace said, Alabama belongs to all of us, black and white, young and old, rich and poor alike. Reporter Wayne Greenhall was on the steps of the Capitol at the time, covering Wallace's inauguration address, and he happened to run into Asa Carter. After the speech, I found Asa out on the back steps of the Capitol, And we sat on the stairs talking, and he started crying. He said, Wayne, George Wallace sold out. He's betraying us to the liberals of this nation. He stood up and turned around and said, farewell. Well, I am just an old rebel. Reckon that is all I am. For this carpetbag of government, I do not give a dad blame. I'm glad I fit again it. I'll keep fighting till we won. And I don't want no pardon for nothing that I've done. This is Asa Carter. May God bless you, and I thank you for listening. And that's the last time I ever saw it. Asa Carter, he just vanished like he dropped off the face of the earth. My name is Chuck Weath. I'm Betty Weath. 
and I and my wife ran a bookstore in our town of Abilene, Texas. In 1975, this man came walking in the store and said, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Forrest Carter. He wore a cowboy hat, blue jeans, and had a mustache. He's dark-complected, smile wrinkles around his eyes. He said he was Cherokee, and, and he was raised by his grandparents back in Tennessee. No electricity, no running water. And I liked him. From the very start, I liked him. This new guy in town, Forrest Carter, quickly became a fixture in Abilene, Texas. Chuck and Betty Weath say Forrest was outgoing and friendly. He told people in town he never had any formal education and spent his adult life wandering between ranch jobs. And he entertained everybody with stories about his Cherokee childhood. We had him to our house several times for supper uh, just because you wanted to hear a little more about this life, which I wasn't familiar with at all. He was sort of the underdog of the American culture, and you, you were cheering for him. And uh, you just grew to love him. Chuck and Betty Weath knew Forrest was a writer and that he had written a Western. Forrest told them he was sending copies of the book to people in Hollywood. He'd already approached uh, Clint, Eastwood. Clint Eastwood, and lo and behold, Clint Eastwood was well enough taken by this first book. Forrest told us he's planning to make a movie of it, which indeed he did do, called The Rebel Outlaw, Josie Wales. He lives by his word, and he lives for revenge. Clint Eastwood is the outlaw Josie Wales. Are you going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie? During the time all this was happening, Forrest was hard at work on another book, a book he described differently than his first one. That was a novel. This was an autobiography, and he was calling it The Education of Little Tree. An orphan Cherokee boy raised by his grandparents who grows up to write a Hollywood movie starring Clint Eastwood. It was made for TV. Good morning, this is Today. I'm Barbara Walters with Jim Hart. And in fact, in 1975, Forrest was invited to New York to be a guest on the Today Show with Barbara Walters. She introduced him as an Indian who had busted broncos all over the Southwest. While viewers around the country were being introduced to Forrest Carter, there were some people back in Alabama who recognized a man they hadn't seen in years. Ron Taylor remembers watching that morning as Forrest Carter told viewers he was the storyteller to the Cherokee Nation. He had that black hat pulled way down. <laughs> he just tanned himself up, grew a, a mustache, lost about 20 pounds, but as hard as he tried, he couldn't fool the folks back home. I literally got down in the floor laughing and rolling around. Called the wife. Ace was on TV. He's on with Barbara Walsh. And I'm just rolling around on the floor laughing because Asa had pulled it. You know, he had fooled him. <laughs> By the time the Today Show aired around the country, reporter Wayne Greenhall had already been onto the story for a few months. The story that Asa Carter and Forrest Carter seemed to be the same person. The tip-off came when Wayne happened to write a review of Forrest Carter's first book, the one that became a movie. After the book review appeared in the paper, Wayne ran into an old friend of Asa Carter's, Ray Andrews. And Ray said, old Asa's got you fooled too, huh? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I saw you wrote a, a review of uh, 
of Asa's novel. See, I said, that's Forrest Carter. And Ray grinned and laughed and said, yeah, that's, that's old Asa. Asa's Forrest Carter. Well, I thought, uh, what in the world? And it just bum-fuzzled me. After that original bum-fuzzle, Wayne started to make calls. I got in contact with Eleanor Freed, who was the editor at Delacorte Press, and she had discovered Forrest Carter. And when I told her this story, she said, oh, no, it couldn't be the same guy. He's such a sweet, gentle, uh, fine man. He would never say a word about anybody because of the color of their skin. And I know he's not anti-Semitic because my husband and I are Jewish and we've had him to dinner a number of times and he's always just as nice as he could be. Just couldn't be the same man. In fact, the editor told Wayne she was about to publish Forrest Carter's autobiography, The Education of Little Tree. Wayne told her he would still love to talk to Forrest Carter himself because he was writing a story for the New York Times about all this. Sure enough, in a few days... Forrest Carter called me, and he said, you this green hall boy writing about me? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, now you don't want to hurt old Forrest, do you, boy? And I said, come off of it. He said, I recognize that voice. I know you. You know me. We've drunk beer together. I said, I'm not trying to hurt you, but this uh, this." Business of Little Tree is not a true story. I said, I want to tell the truth about what is going on here. He said, oh, boy, you know I don't do things like that. And he pretty much after that hung up. Wayne had no idea why Asa was doing what he was doing. Why had he changed his name and become a storyteller to the Cherokee Nation? Why had he gotten a tan, slimmed down, and grown a mustache? And how did he expect to get away with going on TV and talking to Barbara Walters in a fake Texas accent? All Wayne knew was Forrest Carter was lying. He wasn't a Cherokee, this wasn't a memoir, and his name wasn't Forrest. And the story ran in the New York Times, August 26, 1976, with the headline, Is Forrest Carter really Asa Carter? Only Josie Wells may know for sure. Wayne thought his New York Times article was going to set off a huge scandal. But a curious thing happened after the article came out, something that surprised Wayne Greenhall, and it probably surprised Asa and Forrest Carter. What happened was nothing. A few months later, Forrest Carter's autobiography, The Education of Little Tree, was published. And in fact, after Forrest slash Asa died in 1979, the book just became more and more popular. In the late 1980s, the education of Little Tree caught a wave of rising interest in all things Native American. And people seemed to identify with its themes. Humility, tolerance, living in harmony with nature. A new paperback edition included a forward by an actual Cherokee writer who called the book deeply poignant and compared it to Huck Finn. More than a million copies were sold. In 1991, the book reached number one on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. In 1994, Oprah Winfrey recommended it on her TV show. Every once in a while, a new article would come out revealing yet again the racist past of the book's author, and some small things would change. The New York Times moved the book from the nonfiction to fiction category. Oprah eventually took it off her book list, 
Some Native Americans said the book was full of stereotypes and was a complete fraud, but the Cherokee guy who wrote the foreword stood by it. It seemed that no matter what came out about the background of the book, its popularity continued. Today you can find it in Barnes & Noble in the Native American section. Most people who love the book simply could not imagine that a former Klansman, racist, anti-Semite, this person couldn't have written The Educational Little Tree. This is historian Dan Carter, who, by the way, isn't related to Asa Carter. But he is writing a biography of the man, and he hits on the question that's at the center of the whole story. Is it possible that something happened in the heart of Asa Carter? Did he change? Was he a reformed racist trying to break from his shameful past, or was he just trying to make a buck? Or was it all just a joke on his New Age liberal readers? What does it mean that the man who wrote this... And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever... ...could also write this... One time, Grandma told me, when you come on something good, first thing to do is share it with whosoever you can find. That way, the good spreads out where no telling how far it'll go. Here's Asa Carter. In the South, we have 98% Anglo-Saxon races, not counting the next. The only group Asa Carter hated more than blacks were Jews. So what does it mean that Forrest Carter created the character of Mr. Wine, a generous and sympathetic Jewish peddler who befriends Littletree? Mr. Wine said if you learnt to place a value on being honest and thrifty, on doing your best, and on caring for folks, this was more important than anything. How could someone talk with so much venom? We shall not submit to Negro dominion another day, another hour, another month. Behind every ballot is a bayonet, and the red blood of an Anglo-Saxon who hopes. And still write something so sweet. I could feel something more, as Grandma said I would. Monola, the Earth Mother, came to me through my moccasins. I would have liked to live that time forever, for I knew I had pleased Grandpa. I had learned the way. Actually, the live in harmony with nature message isn't really that surprising. You might expect a white supremacist to be nostalgic about living off the land. And someone can certainly write hate speech and still love nature. But what most readers took from the education of Little Tree is a message of tolerance and respect for Native Americans and for the African-American and Jewish characters in the book. In fact, the villains in the story aren't the minorities. They're the white politicians. For many people who love the education of Little Tree, the only way to make sense of it was to take the book at its word and to believe that Asa Carter had truly changed. It wasn't an act, but a sincere transformation. Yes, okay, he wasn't a Cherokee orphan, But in his heart, he had become Forrest Carter. And Exhibit A, for this point of view, for the people can change and people do change point of view, is Asa Carter's former boss, George Wallace, the man he wrote speeches for. Primary elections are being held Tuesday, and George Wallace is trying a comeback, trying to become governor again. At black meetings, Wallace repudiates his former racist stands. And whether or not you've agreed with me in everything that I used to do and agree to, I know that you do not. I, too, see the mistakes that all of us made in years past. This is footage from George Wallace's last campaign for governor in 1982. 
He was actually in a wheelchair, the result of an assassination attempt. And he was in the midst of what would be known as his apology tour, going around the state to black churches and civic groups, anyone who would have him, and saying, I was wrong. One of the civil rights leaders Wallace apologized to was Congressman John Lewis, who still has a visible scar on his head from famously being beaten by Alabama state troopers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge on the march to Selma, Alabama. And I remember the occasion so well. It was like someone confessing to the priest or or to a minister, just telling me everything and asking me about everybody that he never had an opportunity to meet with Martin Luther King Jr., to meet Dr. King. He wanted people to forgive him. He said, I never hated anybody. I never hated black people. He said, Mr. Lewis, I'm sorry. And I said, well, Governor, I accept your apology. I believe people have the capacity to change. I think he was sincere. George Wallace was a lifelong politician, and it's impossible to say if his change of heart was authentic or not. But the people he was apologizing to believed it. In his last election as governor of Alabama in 1982, he won with 90% of the black vote. Wallace continued his apology tours long after he left public office. So George Wallace represents the transformation is possible theory. To people in Abilene, Texas, who are friends with Forrest Carter, the Cherokee writer, that's what happened to Asa Carter. He pulled a Wallace. Here's Chuck and Betty Weath. I personally think the Forrest Carter I knew was sincere. The other life he seemed to have had as Asa Carter, I just sort of dismiss it. I agree with that. I guess it's sort of that feeling that give a man a chance, he might change himself. And we felt like, well, he tried to change himself and he succeeded with us. I didn't like Asa Carter, I'll guarantee you. But I did like Forrest Carter. There's another person who has some thoughts on this. One of the few people who knew both, Forrest and Asa Carter. He was Uncle Asa to me. He wasn't Uncle Asa the white supremacist. He wasn't Uncle Asa the staunch segregationist. He was Uncle Asa, you know. So for me, it was my uncle wrote this wonderful book. Carol Boyd is the daughter of Asa Carter's brother. She's never spoken about any of this on the record before. All of Asa's family members have kept silent for years. Like many of them, Carol was sheltered from most of the details of her uncle's racist past. The main thing she knew about her uncle, he was the true author of The Education of Little Tree. So when did you first read The Education of Little Tree? I guess I was a senior in high school when I first read it. I loved it. I fell in love with it. I actually cried. I just think it's a beautiful story. I still read it today. (laughs) Carol describes herself as politically liberal. She voted for Obama twice. And to her, that book is all the proof she needs that in the end, her uncle wasn't so, so different in his views from her. Just to have the ability to write that book, whether you present it as an autobiography or not, just to have that in you, I think, says that there is a good part of this person. I would hope that people would choose to believe. Maybe he found a softer side in his older years, and maybe he did change. Did he change? That's the question you asked. 
No. No, 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 not at all. Not at all did he change. This again is Ron Taylor, one of Asa Carter's friends from the early days back in Alabama. Ron would describe himself as the opposite of politically liberal, and he's chief proponent of theory number two. No, 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 no. Asa Carter did not change. You know, I could uh, do like some and just say, oh, you know, he didn't really mean that. You know, he didn't this, that, and the other, but did. You know, he did. And to refute it, like, say, Wallace did and people like that, then that makes their whole lives lies before them. I mean, oh, Wallace, if they wheeled him out in his wheelchair and he apologized for everything he ever was, but Asa Carter wasn't going to apologize. Uh, He felt like he was right, and he lived it and he died it. He just didn't change. He was Asa Carter. There are some interesting clues that support Ron's theory. Many of the supposed Cherokee words in the book, Asa completely made up, just nonsense words. Mona La, the Earth Mother, it comes up a lot, not a word. The name Forest, it's not about communing with nature. It comes from Nathan Bedford Forrest. Never heard of him? He founded the Ku Klux Klan. And even the fact that the book is told from the point of view of a Cherokee kid, some white supremacists, it turns out, had a thing for Native Americans. KKK members sometimes bragged about being part Native American. It's the noble savage trope that goes back to D.W. Griffith films and much earlier. It may seem counterintuitive, but to Asa Carter, it was perfectly reasonable to glorify Native Americans while hating blacks and Jews. And there's one more thing. Asa's inscription in the copy of the book that he gave to Ron. And uh, this is my copy of it. It has gotten rather tattered. His signature page, it says, For Ronnie, my friend whose loyalty to the Southern cause has made us comrades. Forrest, Asa, in quote, Carter. The only time he ever signed it that way. All this leads Ron to a third theory, one I wasn't expecting. Asa didn't change, and he didn't fake a change. The education of Little Tree is exactly what Asa Carter always believed. Everyone else just misinterpreted it. Well, one way you look at it, it's a tree hugger's book. You know, it's all about nature and, you know, and this, that, and the other. And the other way, it's a right-wing government leave-me-alone book, you know. The government took Little Tree and put him in an orphanage, you see. And the government passed the whiskey tax, and the government did this, and the government did that to the American Indian. And that's the way I read it. <laughs> I was shocked when I found out other people was understanding it differently. Ron feels that the education of Little Tree is speaking directly to him and to what he believes. But I asked Ron, what if it's the other way around? What if you're the one who's wrong? Well, I, I would like to know myself if, if it's what I think it is. What I think it is. I think he wrote it for me. <laughs> me and my ilk. But I don't know that. Because it's probably been more interpreted the other way. The other way being the tree hugger way as opposed to my anti-government, anti-cities, government intrusion in our daily lives, that type thing. I don't know. I know how I took it, but I also know that as many or more people took it the other way. 
Asa Carter. I wish I knew what he thought, I really do. But I honestly don't know. I don't know myself what to make of the whole thing. But while I was working on this story, I picked up a new copy of The Education of Little Tree, and I started to read it to my two daughters. They're loving it. Of course, they don't know the backstory, and I'm not sure when I'm going to tell them. For me, it's kind of confusing to read the book and know the history. Like, am I a sucker for just reading it? Every once in a while, I'll come across a passage, like when five-year-old Little Tree sees a hawk kill a young quail. It makes him sad. So his grandfather teaches him the way, which is about taking only what you need, and about how nature weeds out the small and the slow so the species can grow stronger and more powerful. And I think, is this some white supremacist secret code of racial purity? Or is it just a lovely lesson about the circle of life and not being greedy? A few days ago, I was sharing a pastry with one of my daughters. I tore it in half and held out the two pieces. She chose the small one, and then she looked at me and said, I have learned the way. For her, the book has nothing to do with small government or racial superiority. It's all about trying to understand people different from yourself, just being a good human being. Whatever Forrest Carter believed in his heart of hearts, it's safe to say this is a book that Asa Carter would have hated. Joe Richman of Radio Diaries. There's much more from Joe at radiodiaries.org and on the Radio Diaries podcast. We're going to let Asa Carter's old friend from back in the day, Ron Taylor, play us out. He and Asa wrote a song together after a Little Tree came out. It was supposed to go in the movie version, but never did. Uh, I put the melody to it. He did all the words. It doesn't mention Little Tree, but it's about... It comes from the Little Tree book. Uh, Let me tell you of a trail in Tennessee. See? Is that cabin still a-standing on the ridge? On that mountain standing high against a clear and southern sky. One other thing. Joe is in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign right now. If you liked this story and you want more like it, go back him. Kickstarter plus Radio Diaries. With that red bone hound whining. It's been a long time since I sung it. In Tennessee. Water's called to me Where that mountain cabin waits Where that mountain mama's saying She's longing for my heart Coming up, death. Death is coming up. And death is not who you think it is. That's in a minute from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Alex Bloomberg sitting in for Ira Glass, who's out this week. Today's show, 180. We've arrived at Act 2. Act 2, unsafety exit. So, you know, every once in a while, someone says, you did a total 360 on that. Like, you did a total 360 on drugs or gay marriage or ferrets. And then someone who knows math will say, it's not a 360. It's a 180. A 180 is when you used to hate dogs and now you love dogs. A 360 would be if you started out hating dogs, then you love dogs. And then you were like, oh, yeah, I was right. I do hate dogs. The next story is about a person who started out wanting the normal 180, but then actually ends up going for the full 360. Hannah Jaffe-Walt has our story. 
Michael is a tall, skinny 16-year-old who talks a lot about feelings. A limited category of feelings, gut feelings. Michael chose turkey for lunch because he had a gut feeling about it. You like his blue shirt? Yeah, he had a gut feeling he should go blue and not red. I don't think about a lot of things. It just comes to me. It just happens. Wherever my road leads me, I go to. I like, I follow my road. Michael's into his road brings it up a lot. The first time Michael heard about Lincoln High School, he was in eighth grade, sitting in class, and his teacher mentioned Lincoln had a strong basketball team. Michael had a gut feeling he should be at Lincoln. It wasn't that he was unhappy at the school where he was, Union. He liked it. He liked the kids, liked the teachers. But the basketball team was not great. And Michael believed he was destined for the NBA. His parents were okay with Lincoln. They liked that it had a vocational program. So in August, Michael got a letter that he was in. Like how I felt when I got that letter? Say you're on a road. Straight, straight ahead, a mile away is the NBA, right there. It was just a straight path to me. That's how I felt. If you just follow the road, the NBA is one mile away. Yeah. And like, I just couldn't wait to go to school. The first few months of ninth grade at Lincoln, Michael got to school 20 minutes early and waited outside for the doors to open. He says he woke up excited every morning. He did have a 40-minute commute. That part wasn't great. And from the train, he had to cross a park that didn't feel super safe. Also, sitting alone in the cafeteria as a new kid, he hated that. But it was all okay because Michael really felt he was at Lincoln to make his dreams come true. He was on his road. So all that other stuff, it was just gnats to swat away until he could get to tryouts in November. I was actually really hyped for it. Every class, I was like, oh, yeah, it's tryouts, next period, tryouts, last period, tryouts. I just kept saying that, and everybody was like, yeah, we're about to get this. Michael showed up in a giant gym, and the coaches started everyone on layup drills. But I kept missing. Then we did left hand, and then I missed every left hand. Then we did um shooting. It was bad, really bad. What happened? Air balls. Uh, like, the ball kept falling out of my hands. It was just bad. That was the worst I've ever done in my life in basketball. Why do you think you did so badly? Probably I was nervous. I, I did horrible. That's why they looked at me as if I was nothing. Michael didn't even make the first cut. Michael has a lot of metaphors to describe the next period of his life. He told me it was like the school was wearing a mask, and after tryouts, the mask came off. In this metaphor, Michael concedes he put the mask on the school. The NBA fantasy, that's the mask. But he says after tryouts, the school was naked and it looked ugly. Suddenly, he could see everything clearly. He wasn't a mile away from the NBA. He was lonely, far from home, in a huge school he didn't like, in a neighborhood he didn't like, in a life he didn't like. He started coming to school late, really late, three hours late. He failed his first period class. And when Michael did show up, he'd just spend all his time thinking about his old school, about Union. At lunch, he'd sit there wondering what they were eating back at Union, which field trips they were going on this year. And then at night, he'd go and check Facebook and try to figure out what happened that day at Union. Michael told his principal he wanted to go back to Union. The principal said there's no way to transfer mid-year. He'd have to wait until the summer, then see if his old school had a spot for him. So Michael did what any 15-year-old does when he doesn't like the answer he's given. He asked again, and again. And when he got the same answer, he started asking other people. 
And I kept asking teachers, how could I transfer out? They said, the only way for you to transfer out, you got to get a safety transfer. And that's by something that you feel is, like, dangerous around you that you can't be in the area. Safety transfer. That phrase stuck in Michael's brain, mostly because it included the word transfer. So Michael went back to the principal. What about a safety transfer? Can I get one of those? But Michael says the principal laughed. Safety transfers are for people whose safety has been threatened. He said, so far, you're in good hands, so nothing has happened to you. Like, that I'm safe. That's when it clicked for Michael. The only way to get back to his old school was to make himself less safe. So Michael hatched his plan. There were several steps. It began with a simple purchase. Okay, I went to a Chinese website, and I bought the hat. Michael bought a winter hat, an NBA one, a beanie with a fuzzball at the top. It was a it was a um NBA team beanie, my favorite NBA team Knicks. Ordered it. A week later got it, wore it to school. Get off the train and I'm making eye I'm trying to make as much eye contact as I can with like all the people that kinda look scary. That had like sagging their pants, had chains on. So I was looking at people, seeing some kid in the store, right? I just like glared my eyes at him. But like I didn't make just eye contact. I stared at them. I counted the three. I said, one, two, three. Heard, yo, boy, come here. He ran up behind me, tapped me in the chest. I said, yeah, what do you want from me? And like the same exact tone, yeah, what do you want from me? He was like, he was like, yo, you got any money on you? You got your phone on me, on you? I was like, I was like, no, I don't. You want my hat though? He was like, actually, yeah, give me a hat. I gave it to him. He said, yo, if you if you lying to me, if you have your phone or wallet, don't lie to me. You better give it to me now. My squad's going to jump you. Michael did have a wallet in his pocket and an iPod in his sock. So he ran, ran across the street fast, almost got hit by a truck and right into the school. It wasn't, no, it wasn't like, oh, I just got robbed. I need help. It was, yo, I just got robbed. Son, I just got robbed. I got to tell the teachers I'm about to get this transfer. And like... And then my friends, all my friends came up to me like, yo, I heard you got robbed. I was like, yeah, I got robbed. Kids started telling teachers. Teachers even came up to me asking, are you okay? Went to the principal, told the principal what happened, went to the precinct, filed a police report. Then I went back to the assistant principal and got my file. Did you feel bad at all? No, I was feeling good. It's great. I knew what was gonna happen next. Michael called his old school, told them he got a safety transfer. They said, okay, didn't ask any questions. The principal told me we didn't want to know. After a couple hours with Michael, I told him I couldn't figure out if what he did was brilliant or so stupid, and that I was settling on both. He said that seemed about right. Yeah, everything was just came coming to me just fast. Like my plan, it's like, it just went so smoothly and perfect. Like, that was, that's the smartest plan I've came up with so far. But why did you have to get robbed at all? That was the only way for you to get a safety transfer. But you could have, but nobody knew that they took your hat, right? No. Could have just put the beanie under your bed at home and yeah, said that you got robbed. That's true, too. I don't know why I did it. I don't know. I just felt like I needed the experience. So, like, instead of me just saying, Oh, I got robbed. They took my hat. I said, no, I got robbed. They actually took my hat and left, and they they ran away with it. Like, I put more feelings into what I had to say. And, like, I almost fake cried to the police, too. 
Like, I kept rubbing my eyes. I talked to Michael's mom. She told me she'd already started worrying about the neighborhood around Lincoln. On the day she went to pick up Michael, she hated walking through the park by the school. She started to hear kids were getting jumped for their shoes, book bags. So to her, it didn't matter what her 15-year-old son was up to, whether or not he thought he had some plan. What mattered was that he was actually robbed. In the middle of ninth grade, Michael went back to Union, right after he turned 15. He says, that is when I fixed my mistake. And if you've ever wondered what it would be like to undo some of the mistakes of your adolescence, to pay attention more in U.S. history, to unbreak up with that person you broke up with, Michael is here to tell you that it is as awesome as you've always imagined. Well, I remember my first class was algebra. A girl actually grabbed my hoodie and she said, she said, oh, you look good nowadays. And she said, you're my boyfriend now. She's like one of the popular people who actually grabbed my sweatshirt. Had she noticed you in eighth grade? No, I was not cool with her whatsoever. And instead of me being that five foot five kid with the light voice, I was that six two man with a deep voice. Like, yo, how's life, blah, blah, blah. I remember walking around and everybody's like, oh, he's back. He looks way better. And then I remember teachers, I remember walking to the teacher's lounge and everybody, everybody was screaming, I was like, oh. And that was like, that was when I knew that that was my welcome back to my old school. So you think you made the right decision? Yep, it was a gut feeling. I point out that it was a gut feeling that led Michael to his original mistake, to go to Lincoln. But Michael seems to have a gut feeling that he should not listen to that comment. Michael says the way he sees it, the whole thing was just a U-turn on his road. Hannah Jaffe Walt is a producer on our show. Act three, I'm the one who knocks. Author Ben Lurie has this short story about the 180 that awaits us all. And a quick note to our podcast listeners, there is a curse word that in the podcast we have not beeped. Here's Ben Lurie. A man was walking down a long, long road when he saw a figure approaching from the distance. The man kept going, wondering who it was when suddenly he realized it was death. Shit, said the man. He turned and looked around. There was a tree nearby, one with lots of leaves. So the man ran to it and climbed up in the branches and hid amongst the fruits there, peering out. After a while, he saw death coming down the road. He held very still and tried not to breathe. Keep going, he thought. Keep going, keep going. But death didn't obey. Death stopped. The man felt his heart constrict as death turned to the tree. He felt the blood freeze in his veins as death looked up. Somehow he knew that, despite all the leaves, death could see him there in his hiding place. How, thought the man, how, if he can't see me, how does he know that I'm here? And then the man realized that in the grip of fear, his hands were shaking and they were shaking the tree. Oh God, thought the man, I have to make them stop. He gripped the branches as tightly as he could. But the more he tried to hold them still, the more they shook and shook. And the man began to despair. And in the road, death smiled. And right then it happened, 
the worst possible thing, one of the fruits detached from the tree. The man shaking had loosened it and loosened it and loosened it, and now it broke free and it fell. And death saw the fruit fall, and death came closer, until he stood at the very foot of the tree. And he turned his head and looked up through the branches and the leaves, until he saw the man, and the man saw him. And death smiled and reached down and picked up the fallen fruit, and he opened his mouth and took a bite. Yes, said death, in that voice that death has. The unripe fruits are best, I always say. Panic seized the man. The end, he knew, was near. When death finished the fruit, he would be next. Think, thought the man. Think, think, think. But he couldn't think of a single thing to do. And then, from somewhere on the other side of panic, an idea suddenly came to the man. It might work, he thought. It really just might work. And purposely, he began to shake the tree. At first, his efforts had no effect, but the man did not give up. He shook the tree with all the strength he had. He shook the tree with everything, with his entire being. And the little fruits broke free from the tree, and they rained down hard on death. Damn you, death! Die, 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 yelled the man, as the fruit smashed against death's head and face and shoulders. And then, with a sudden snap, all the fruits broke free, and they came down like an avalanche, and they buried death beneath them. For a while, in the aftermath, there was only silence. And then, in the silence, the man thought back. And suddenly he realized that during the reign of fruit, death had simply laughed and laughed and laughed. The man stayed in the tree for quite some time, until he was sure it was safe. And then, when he climbed down very, very slowly, he stood looking at the great mound of fruit. He tapped it lightly with one foot, and the fruits all rolled aside. And there, beneath, there was no death, nothing, no body, not a thing. Well, all right, said the man. I guess that settles that. And he turned away and hit the road again. Not long thereafter, the man came to a hill. And when he got to the top, he looked down. And there in the valley below, he saw a figure coming towards him. A man, he thought, just a little man. And at that very moment, the little man looked up. He saw the man up on the hill, and he froze. He turned and looked around, around the valley, panic-stricken. And he saw a nearby tree, and he ran. And the man on the hilltop smiled and watched as the little man started to climb. You think you can hide, said the man, from me? And he walked into the valley to see. Ben Laurie is the author of Stories for the Nighttime and Some for the Day. 
program was produced today by Ben Calhoun and me with Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Jaffe Walt, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Robin Simeon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updake. Our senior producer is Julie Snyder. Our glass is the guy normally in this seat. Production help from Allison Davis. Seth Lind is our operations director, Emily Condon. Our production manager, Elise Bergerson. Our administrative assistant, Adrian Mathewitz, runs our website. Research help from Michelle Harris and Julie Beer. Special thanks today to Sarah, Kate Kramer, Nellie Gillis, Samara Freemark, Deborah George, and Ben Shapiro for their work on the Acer Carter story. Thanks also to Bruce Wallace, Malcolm Butler, Dan Carter, and Doug Newman and Mark Ricci, who made the film The Reconstruction of Asa Carter. Wayne Greenhaw was interviewed for the Asa Carter story in 2011, passed away later that same year. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life comes from the car company Scion. For over 10 years, Scion has been helping others follow their passions. Last year, their Motivate program helped 50 creative entrepreneurs take their businesses to the next level with workshops and mentoring. Learn more about Motivate at Scion.com. Also, support for This American Life comes from Lookout, using big data and predictive analytics to protect people and organizations from mobile threats worldwide. More information at Lookout.com. Thanks, as always, to our show's co-founder, Tori Malatia, who is just at the spa getting ready for his Brazilian beach vacation. Apparently, there's a new machine there. It just bum-fuzzled me. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Ira Glass will be back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.